0: These are franchises that don't change hands every day. And so having the first new owner of the Baltimore franchise and having it be a guy who comes from Baltimore, which virtually guarantees that the team is going to
1: stay in Baltimore. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, February 2nd. Today, I'm joined by Puck's newest partner, sports business correspondent, John Orand, to talk about what he's gonna be covering for Puck and also break down his huge headline-driving scoop this week that the Baltimore Orioles are being sold to two private equity billionaires. And later, Bill Cohan joins Ben to discuss why Elon Musk just lost $55 billion in compensation and his new battle with the board to control more of Tesla. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm sorry there's no football on this weekend. Make the most of your time. Get outside. Shovel the snow. Do something. I am so happy today to be joined for the first time by Puck's newest star journalist, our sports business correspondent, John Arand, longtime expert in sports business, broke a huge story in the sports world earlier this week, which is that the Baltimore Orioles, are finally being sold by the Angelos family, John Angelos, to a couple private equity billionaires, David Rubenstein and Mike Arrighetti. This uh, blew up uh, my text yesterday just because I have so many Baltimore people in my life, but it also blew up sports, internet, uh, took ESPN a very long time to confirm John's scoop. John, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Congrats on coming out of the gate at Puck. With this major story Uh, nothing gets me more fired up as a reporter than breaking a story and then no one else has it and there's this like window of like 10 to 20 minutes where you know it's good and no one can confirm it and they're like wait is this true is this true so thank you for bringing that kind of heat to puck and welcome how you doing
0: hey can i brag for a second peter like, please, please. The Baltimore Sun and the Baltimore Banner, uh, two good papers. Especially, I love the Baltimore Banner. It took them more than an hour yeah. to, to, uh, to 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 confirm the details. <laughs> I I was pretty pleased about that one. Definitely, yeah. That was a that's one that goes on the wall.
1: After the story broke, I remember just poking around to see who's chasing it, who had confirmed. I went to the Baltimore Sun's website, and they hadn't confirmed it, but there was a story. There were like multiple stories on the front homepage of just like. Sadness around the Ravens and like the Ravens loss and like Lamar and all this stuff. And then simultaneously, my text messages, my buddy Alex, who who lives in Baltimore, it was like, all oh, my buddies are freaking out about this thing. Like, this is is this even true? Oh, my God. Like, tell me this is true. And they were just so happy in Baltimore to have this. To turn the page from the Ravens' loss last weekend. So, before getting into the story, John, I just want to, you know, introduce you to to our listeners here and Puck fans. Give us a little bit of like your backstory. Where did you come from? It certainly seems like you're Washington, Baltimore Homer. You're going to be like the Scott Van Pelt of Puck, just like constantly talking about <laughs> Washington area. Sorry, rooting at least for <laughs> Washington area sports teams. But are you a are you a DMV guy? Just tell us a little bit about your career until now
0: you know, SVP, and we were classmates out at the University of Maryland together. Radio, TV, and film majors, uh, we were. We were, were there at the same time. So, uh, uh, I grew up. I'm one of the uh, one of the few in the proud. I grew up in DC, so I'm a, I'm a DC native. I uh, went went to school here and uh, ended up uh, traveling a bit. I, you know, lived in London for about four years. I lived out west in Washington State for a couple of years, but I always knew there's something about D.C. I always knew that I was going to uh, get back here, uh, much like uh, Scott Van Pelt did when he was uh, up in Bristol with the ESPN. He always figured he was going to get back here, and, uh, and we came back. I'm a career journalist. It's all I've done. I, my first job was uh, ages ago for a weekly newspaper owned by the Washington Post called the Bethesda Gazette, covering all the happenings of uh, Bethesda, Maryland. I decided I needed to try to make a little more money, so I got into the trades. Like I couldn't last in the uh, in the consumer uh, business uh, too too much, so I uh, I, I joined um, Phillips uh, Business Information. Ended up covering the cable industry, um, moving over to England, like I said, and covered the TV industry over there. And then in 2006, there was an opening for this publication called Sports Business Journal for a media reporter, and so. Having covered hmm. the cable industry, I, I realized I didn't have to cover poll attachment fee hearings and I didn't have to cover, you know, the 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 speed of broadband uh, as it was getting uh, rolled out. I could just cover ESPN and all of the different stories that occur from ESPN. So for the past 18 years, I've been at a sports business journal uh, documenting everything that's going on with uh, with, with sports media and having, having a ball doing it. What are your Baltimore connections? Why did you have so many people texting you?
1: So that's what I was going to say. Uh, you will have a friendly ear when you talk about D.C., Maryland sports. You know, my mom grew up in D.C. My whole extended family is from Bethesda Chevy Chase. Very close family friends in Richmond. The Starnes are from Baltimore. But speaking of the Terps, you no, know, my, my parents met working in local TV in D.C. My dad moved from Cincinnati, uh, you know, after college and got into television and worked, I think, for at least one season. Uh, doing production stuff at Cole House, covering the Terps and Lefty Giselle and all that. But I went to Georgetown, lived in D.C. for 10 years. I, you know, Commander's fans, so I'll be hitting you up for all of the Josh Harris scoops <laughs> uh, in the Slack. I, I mean, as people who listen to this podcast know, if you care about sports, I have I a weird hybrid sports affinities because of my dad's Cincinnati roots and my mom's D.C. roots. Uh, so... I will be hitting you up a lot for, for DC stuff, but I will go deep with you. You know what's funny about on, that, Peter,
0: is uh, my wife went to yeah. Xavier, so I have a, I'm have not going to call him Cincinnati roots, but uh, certainly some Ohio roots there. She's from Cleveland.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, my dad went to UC, so we hate Xavier here. I tell you, that. Um, John, it's so good to have you at Puck. I want to ask you about this Orioles story. We are talking beforehand. It sounded like you were super hyped to scoop this story, uh, obviously, because they're your backyard team, you're an Orioles fan as well. But I think one reason my Baltimore friends and their friends were freaking out about this is that it feels like the Orioles. It's you know, sort of like being a Redskins slash Commanders fan over the years. You just started to hate Dan Snyder, and it feels like Baltimore fans didn't like Peter Angelos, weren't in love with John Angelos, who, by the way. Didn't just own the team; had management responsibilities for players. So, you know, why is this story such a big deal beyond your affinity for Baltimore?
0: Well, the story's a big deal because the Angelo's family has owned it uh, since 1993. You know, these are franchises that don't change hands every day, and so having the uh, the first new owner of the Baltimore franchise and having it be a guy who comes from Baltimore, which virtually guarantees that the team is, is going to stay in Baltimore there' have been all these rumors that the Orioles were going to go to Nashville or to Portland Oregon or or wh- wh- whatever oh. whatever city wants to get them because r- really when the Nats came in you know you have the Nats to the south and you have the Phillies to the north and Baltimore sort of got squeezed before the Nats Baltimore owned down through uh, North Carolina to where you know the the Braves would come up. So mm-hmm. this is something, it doesn't happen every day. And a $2 billion deal, uh, that was one that I was uh, very, very happy to, to, to break. I, I have to tell you, this is my first week at Puck. And I have a little bit of angst because uh, when you, you say Puck's, Puck has superstar Reporters, they have superstar reporters, and I have to make sure that I I show my worth with it. So when I heard that when I heard the rumor, I was like, I've got to make sure I get this break. And it looked like it was going to fall through on Monday, and then on Tuesday, uh, I I got a little bit lucky with it.
1: Uh, I think it was a product of hard work. That's for sure. No, I mean we do have (laughs) great reporters, but uh, you're already living up to the hype. There is a media angle to this too, which is as Nats and Orioles fans know. Uh, you watch the games on cable on Masson, the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network. The Orioles own three quarters of Masson, according to your piece. Uh, the Nats own the rest. Does the Angeles family own that? Like, do the new guys take control of that? Do they spin it off? What's the deal with Masson?
0: You know, that's the big unanswered question because uh, Masson, which launched in 2004 or five, right, right around when the Nats came in, because that's that, that's where they they got the right the rights to it. Uh, And the Orioles basically have controlled the Nationals' uh, rights. I I haven't been able to figure out what's going to happen with Masson yet, but I can pretty much guarantee you that if there are two billionaire owners that are buying a baseball team, they know there's a a pathway for the future to to, uh, what's going to happen with the team. I'm not sure what that's going to entail yet. A lot of that, uh, Peter, is the other story that's happening is the, the Nationals are for sale as well. And mm-hmm. so it's been a sticky, messy situation because nobody knows sort of how the mass and uh, everything with mass and, and its ownership structure is going to shake out. And so if this has been decided, then that's going to make the, the national sale a whole lot easier, I would think.
1: What does this mean for the value of baseball clubs generally? Like, obviously, baseball has slipped a bit in the American consciousness. It's not the, not the top dog anymore and hasn't been for a long time. That's the NFL. And then college football and the NBA, I think, after that. This deal values the Orioles at $1.7 billion. Clearly, these two guys want to invest in it, which hopefully sends shivers down the spine of their fellow AL East opponents, the Red Sox <laughs> and the Yankees. Um, but does this sort of uh, drive up the price for future sales in baseball, or is that is that more just depending on the teams?
0: You know, the Suns in the NBA got sold recently, and, and that went for over $4 billion. It valued the team at about $4 billion. Here in the D.C. market, the Commanders just went for over $6 billion. My first reaction when I saw $1.7 billion for the Orioles was that that didn't seem like like a ton. It seemed like a, a pretty good deal for, for Rubenstein. And I, I think that uh, the the, the buyer who's, who's buying it. Um, but as I looked into it... Um, it's fallen pretty much in line with other baseball sales that have occurred relatively recently. I think everybody, myself included, are used to uh, when there's a franchise sale, it sets a record and everything grows a, a little bit. That happened with the Suns in the NBA. It happened with the Commanders in the NFL. It didn't happen here, but it's close enough that I, I, you know, it, it didn't uh, speak to me a, a ton.
1: John, thanks so much for joining me. Everyone listening, like all Puck writers, John has a private email you should sign up for. His is called The Varsity. Sign up for it at Puck to get more scoops and insight about the business of sports, more uh, inside details like this. And it's my hope, at least, uh, some more coverage of DMV sports, which I don't get enough of out here in Los Angeles. John, uh, before you go, have you been to the Varsity restaurant uh in Atlanta. In Atlanta uh, you which, get a hot dog
0: uh, you get hot dogs there right? Or hamburgers. What what yeah. is it? Yeah.
1: Yeah yeah. No my uh my UGA and Georgia Tech friends uh, when I told them uh your column is going to be called The Varsity they were like uh oh well we we already have a Varsity <laughs> and it it causes indigestion uh on game days. So next time you're in Atlanta check out The Varsity and get a t-shirt.
0: I worked it out with uh, John Kelly like you either make The Varsity or you don't. We didn't write about you this week. You didn't make The Varsity.
1: You're on the JV. <laughs> Got it. John, so happy to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm thrilled, man. I'm so happy to be here. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk about his favorite subject, Elon Musk. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The evening standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey guys, it's Peter, when I'm not recording the pod, let's be honest, I'm probably snacking, I get hungry. But when I can steal some moments during the day, I do like to eat healthy and eating better is easy with factors, delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. And this is big, no cooking required. I recommend the smoothies. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So, what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. These are two minute meals, fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are pancakes i love pancakes more than waffles more than french toast a couple of my favorites so far the red chili chicken tamale bowl and the smoky bacon and cheddar egg bites i love egg bites discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast midday bites and more no prep no mess meals factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed So sign up and save. Head to factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 and use code powers that be 50 to get 50% off. That's code powers that be 50 at factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 to get 50% off.
2: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill to discuss my favorite Wall Street story of the week, the incredible... Saga of Elon Musk's disappearing 55 billion dollars in compensation at Tesla. Bill, this has got to be the biggest executive compensation clawback of all time. I'm not sure what's crazier that a judge agreed with a shareholder lawsuit that Elon was overpaid and just voided this compensation package uh, or, or that the Tesla board gave Elon all this money to begin with. Um, what is uh, what is your take on all this? I mean this is a pretty extraordinary thing that's just happened.
3: Yeah, it is pretty ex- extraordinary, and and again with the, with the caveat that I haven't yet read through all of the two hundred page uh, decision, which the, you know might contain nuances and justifications. Um, first of all, I mean it's it's an extraordinary decision, by far the largest clawback uh, by a factor of perhaps a hundred or more, and yet in typical Elon fashion, I mean his. You know, requests from the board. I mean, I certainly remember when all that happened and uh, it seemed like something that he would never achieve. Uh, And so it seemed like, okay, you know, you can make this extraordinary ask for compensation and it's sort of obviously heavily weighted towards creating extraordinary shareholder value. Uh, And oh, by the way, you'll never be able to do it. So it'll be expire worthless. And so putting the carrot way, way out there, um, you know, for you to aim for and to try to achieve, you know, that all that all seems okay.
2: Well, Bill, Bill, just to jump in here for people who aren't uh, familiar with the details, this was um, 2018. The board granted Musk uh, stock equivalent to 12% of the, the company's stock if he hit certain milestones over the next 10 years. And then he, he just blew past them. I, I mean, I think if he took the company from like $50 billion to $500 billion, uh, he, he was going to hit that. And I think the company was at least over $800 billion, um, last year or the year before, before coming back down to earth. And
3: it, I think at one point it got close to a trillion. Yeah. So it so was an extraordinary amount of money that, that he made for those shareholders. Extraordinary. And so, you know, in the, in the way our system works, if you create that much value and you have this extraordinary uh, incentive, uh, and goal, uh, and you actually achieve it on behalf of your shareholders. And he's, you know, a quasi founder, right? He's not a founder of the company per se, but he was an early financier of the company and brought it to extraordinary heights. I mean, all of it is sort of very consistent with, you know, the way our, our you know, our system works where you reward, Financial performance with financial reward. And so I don't think anybody has any problem with that. But again, in typical Elon fashion, you know, it was just a larger than life, you know, way, way, way beyond what anybody else had ever, you know, asked for, received from his board, and then actually achieved. Uh, So all of it is, you know, outsized and Elon esque. And right. I mean, I think he was what, worth. 30 billion or something when all this started, and now he's worth 200 billion or so, or something, you know. And one point was worth 230 billion. I mean, so, you know, on the one hand, he uh, asked for an extraordinary amount, Uh, it was heavily performance-weighted, and then he achieved it, which, of course, is why he became the world's wealthiest man, and now. Shareholders, of course, thought it was piggish, and of course it was, but on the other hand, he achieved it, and they achieved a great return. Uh, I don't know whether it was proportional; it was probably disproportionate to his benefit. But the shareholders, you know, have made an extraordinary return too. And for some reason, the judge in Delaware agreed with the shareholders, and of course, Elon, being Elon, was pissed off and said, "You know, be, be beware of." incorporating in Delaware. I mean, he's had right. any number of setbacks yeah. in Delaware. And he'll appeal
2: this. He'll, I mean, he'll, he'll appeal this decision, and it, it may very well be reversed. Yeah, no, it, it was an interesting decision from the, the judge, and I have not read through the entire thing either. But, you know, she made this point that um, it's not like Elon was in, in bad shape before he got this compensation package. He had already owned like 20% of the company. And she said, look, for, for every $50 billion in value he creates here, he's going to get Ten billion himself, like it's not like uh, he wasn't already incentivized, and and that was you know at least part of her argument for why this package was unnecessary. But but as for whether it was um, a mistake by the board in terms of their fiduciary duty, that seems like a much harder question to me, at least as a, as an outsider. I mean, you're not dealing with an ordinary board. This is a board that is filled with allies and lackeys and you know at least one family member. But Elon's not a uh, an ordinary ceo and um everybody here has just been laughing to the bank
3: well of course laughing to the bank and you could argue as i have written many times that tesla's stock uh achieved escape velocity and you know its valuation made no sense based on its earnings still makes no sense based on its earnings but you know it's a cult of elon and there aren't many ways that the cult members can go along for the ride, and Tesla is one of them. You know, SpaceX is private, Boring Company is private, Neuralink is private. It's very difficult for the members of the cult to participate in Elon's quote-unquote genius, and Tesla is one way, and uh, it's an easy way, and people just buy into it, and all the naysayers and people who are you know, sort of mired in reality uh, and have perhaps shorted the stock, have gotten their head handed to them uh, until, of course, you know, this year it hasn't performed well one month in. Again, the way our system works, you know, if you've got the balls to ask for this kind of extraordinary compensation package, which was way out of the money, uh, Ben, and for him to achieve it, you know, obviously it's ridiculous. Uh Just in the same way that, you know, Mike Milken getting $500 million, you know, in the 80s was incredibly outside uh, the box, but even by Wall Street standards and, you know, like Elon, uh, Mike Milken, you know, created something extraordinary uh, that is still viable and very, very important today. One of perhaps the greatest innovation in 20th century Wall Street history The high yield market, the junk bond market, you know, what Elon in his way, look, I mean, electric cars have been around for a hundred years, but the batteries weren't very useful. And, you know, Elon effectively brought them back. And, you know, whether he deserves or the company deserves this extraordinary valuation that, you know, I think at one point was more than all the other top 10 car companies combined I don't think it's quite that anymore but still by far the most valuable car company in the world whether that's appropriate or just a function of the cult-like following that Elon Musk has there we are there we are and and now this judge in Delaware has taken it away or but you know taken 55 billion of it away Again, it's sort of like um, him buying Twitter for $44 billion and doing a face plant on, you know, $24 billion of his own money uh, relatively quickly, uh, you know, and, and you know, in the year plus since that's happened, his wealth has, you know, gone up much more than the $24 billion that he lost buying Twitter, and who knows, you know, whether this will just be a... If, if, in fact, he loses this, which, again, I think he will appeal. I don't know what the prospects for the appeal are. Probably not great. But if he, um, you know, what, whether this is just yet another little speed bump on the road to his, you know, more wealth, uh, or maybe this will give him even more incentive to do whatever he does, work whatever magic he works. And it's certainly not going to affect his lifestyle one, one bit. But, you know, I'm sure losing $55 billion even for Elon Musk is painful. Yeah, well, you you mentioned Twitter. I mean, to me, the
2: the greater dereliction of uh, fiduciary duty is just this is a guy who has like six other companies. I mean, how much attention can he really be paying to Tesla or SpaceX when he's spending, you know, half his waking hours on Twitter, let alone running Twitter from from the corner office? But to your point, you look, all, all these companies are doing relatively well and Twitter Perhaps not, but it's still afloat. Um, SpaceX, an incredible success. Tesla has its problems, but it's still a a growing company. Bill, before I let you go, I want to get your quick response on one other Elon legal drama, which is that um, while this decision was pending from the judge, you also saw Elon go out on Twitter to, or sorry, X, to publicly demand
3: this another huge stock grant from the... can we call it Twix? I mean, I've been really working this Twix. You've thing. been trying to make that happen. Twitter's trying to make X Twix happen. Equals Twix. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been trying to make it happen. Bill, we saw Elon
2: on Twix publicly demand another huge stock grant. From the Tesla board, he basically said, um, "Look, if you don't give me at least twenty-five percent voting control of this company, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my marbles and go home. I'm gonna develop AI at one of my other companies." How unusual is that? I mean, that that seemed like I mean, talk about extraordinary. Not just this compensation package that arrived and then went away, but to sort of threaten the board on Twix. <laughs> Have you ever seen anything like that?
3: I mean, this is a form of extortion. It seems to me. I mean. If I don't get what I want, I'm going to take my marbles and go home. I'm going to take my extraordinary AI inventions, I mean, and go start another company. Again, I mean, this guy is obviously doing things that no one else would have the you know cojones to do. And, you know, people take him seriously, Ben, because of how rich he is and what an out-of-the-box thinker he is. And so... I mean, it seems to me it's quite threatening. If I were Tesla shareholders, I'd be quite pissed because it seems to me, uh, you know, that this is what should be done as part of Tesla. You know, on the other hand, he's started all these other companies outside of Tesla. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether AI or, or the robotics thing, you know, that he's contemplating, should be part of Tesla or maybe it shouldn't be part of Tesla, but maybe, you know, normally what happens, uh, a Ben, is, you know, if, if a company is started inside of another company and it and it doesn't fit, then they spin it off to shareholders. So shareholders get some benefit of that. He's not talking about starting it and spinning it off. He's talking about if I don't get more of the company, I mean, how much, I mean, I, I don't know what drives the guy. I mean, when is enough enough? You know, I don't know. I mean, he can obviously demand these things. He'll probably get them because you point out correctly that his board is pretty much of a pushover at this point. Obviously, they let him do Solar City merger, which had nothing to do with Tesla. And now he's trying hard to make it seem like it makes sense. He gets his way. He gets us to do whatever he wants, pretty much with impunity. And I suspect he'll get his way with this. And even more so now, because he's losing the $55 billion, or he may be on the verge of losing this $55 billion pay package. So maybe he knew he was going to lose or thought he was going to lose and needed to figure out a way to compensate for that loss.
2: Yeah. Well, Bill, we'll, we'll see what happens with uh, Elon's demand for more shares. We'll see what happens with the compensation package. Until then, thank you. And uh, I'll see you on Twix, my friend. Oh, Always a pleasure, Ben. See you on Twix. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey.